Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. The series that I've titled Sacred Cows and Finding Biblical Unity Even When We Disagree. Finding biblical unity even when we disagree. And by the way, that word biblical is key there. It is not unity at all costs. It is not doctrine doesn't matter. No, doctrine matters. Doctrine divides. And we have to stand firm and true, as one, one of my mentors, Dr. Charles Keene, uh, has said. He said, Ryan, I think he's in his early 80s now. He said, Ryan, when I was a pastor, I tried to be loud where the Bible was loud and quiet where the Bible was quiet. And uh, we have to stand strong and be loud where the Bible is loud. And what we see in many, even churches in this day, what we see in society is where the Bible is loud, we want to quiet it. Where the Bible is loud, we want to outlaw it in our society, even in churches some, we want to quiet it. And maybe where the Bible isn't loud, we want to be really loud and uh, give our opinions, our preferences, our ideas, our truth. And so for this series, we've defined a sacred cow as a strongly held belief, opinion, or practice that is neither commanded nor forbidden in the Bible. And by the way, we all have them. Things that we feel really strongly about one way or the other that is not commanded or forbidden in the Bible. And by the way, the Bible tells us, and I'm not going to review the whole series, the first four messages, but the Bible tells us it's okay to have them. Paul addressing in Romans 14, he addressed groups of people that had their sacred cows, things they felt really strongly about in personal practice, in their spiritual lives, in their gathering, and in the calendar, if you will, the program of the church. They felt really strongly about it. And Paul didn't tell them to stop having those strongly held practices, opinions, beliefs. Uh, He didn't tell them that. What he said was, don't divide over them. He said, we're going to see it here tonight, he he didn't tell them to get rid of their sacred cows, he said to put them in the right place. So does the Bible teach us how to handle these matters where we feel really strongly when they arise within church families and within, uh, within Christianity in general? Yes. There are several passages that speak to how to walk through these things, but we have mainly in this series been in Romans 14. You can go back and catch the archived messages in this series in Romans 14. For the sake of review, uh, because we have been kind of disjointed, we're having one message every three or four Sunday nights, just to remind us where we've been. Week number one, the title was, What is Your Baby Cow's Name? And we looked at the fact that all of us have what might we, by definition here, now we're not talking about something we worship, hopefully not, but something we feel really strongly about that is neither commanded nor forbidden in the Bible, and just to admit, we have these things. What is your baby cow's name? Number two was mad cow disease, the danger and the poison that can come when we elevate these these sacred cows in our lives to a level they shouldn't be. Week number three was don't take down all the fences. 
So the idea, and and, and probably my generation and younger, the danger for most of us is that we're taking too strong of stands on on sacred cows. The danger is that we're tearing down some fences on some things, even doctrinally in in our churches and in our culture and our society, and we're getting rid of things that really matter. Don't take down every fence. And we looked at that message week number three. Week number four, how to treat other cattle farmers. So how do you treat those that are raising their own little baby cows? while you're raising yours. Tonight in our fifth of what I believe will be a seven-week series, our message title is this, Old MacDonald Had a Farm. How many of you had a toy like this growing up where it had the animals all around it and you pull the lever and it tells you a different animal that was on Old MacDonald's farm and it sings it for you? I'll, I'll get here. I'm on number nine here. Let's see if this works. So let's see which, which animal we'll get. How, here we go. Let's see what, what animal it gives us. And on that farm he had a goat. E-I-E-I-O. With a here and a there, here and there, everywhere. Old MacDonald had a farm. E-I-E-I-O. How many of you had a, a toy like that growing up? They've been selling these things for decades, haven't they? Or your kids had one of those, and, and every time the child would pull it, so that was a goat, and then you pull it again, and it gives you another animal. Let's see what this, this one is. And on that farm he had a horse. He had a horse. And then it would continue on, and you pull it again. And this one, we've moved into the 20, 20, uh, first century, and this one didn't even just stop at the barnyard animals. If you get bored with them, you can turn over and you can go to uh, jungle animals, and then you've got monkeys and lions, and, and it plays another song when the kid push it, pulls it. There's an elephant. Oh, there's an elephant. So my toy didn't have elephants when I was growing up. It didn't, it didn't have alligators and all of that, and if there's any, anyone has a toddler that would like one of these after church, have them come see me, and I'll give this one to them, all right? But we sing that song, and we have that that toy, and how exciting would that toy be if every time you pulled it, it was the same animal? And you pulled it, Old MacDonald had a farm, and on that farm there was our first animal, a goat. And then the kid pulls it again, and there was a goat, pulled it again. How, How long do you think that kid would play with that? After about four or five times of hearing the goat do the same thing, probably this is the dumb, this is a dumb toy. Old MacDonald needs some new animals on his farm. There needs, he needs to have more than just one animal. It would not have been a top-selling toy for toddlers for decades like it has been. Of course, if Old MacDonald's farm was all cows, we would lose interest pretty quickly. Old MacDonald had a goat and a cow and a sheep and a horse and a rooster and a chicken and a duck. And so how does Old MacDonald and a Fisher-Price toy have anything at all to do with our series on biblical unity in the church? Let's look here in Romans 14. What were they fighting about in the church? They were fighting about dietary laws and practices as well as religious days that they felt strongly should or shouldn't be observed based on their upbringings, based on their religious um, traditions, based on their background, based on their family practice, based on the church they grew up in or did not grow up in. They were fighting about these these areas. They were fighting over strongly held standards of personal behavior, whether to eat meat or not to eat meat offered to idols. 
strongly held standards of personal behavior, and they were also fighting over uh, the ways, the program of their church and their spiritual lives, if you will, the ways that they remembered and worshiped God, the days, should they be recognizing as New Testament believers pass over, should they be doing, and the Gentiles were like, why would we be having these feasts? It has nothing to do, we didn't grow up doing this, and the Jews were like, you've got to do this, this is, this is more important than anything else, and, and they were fighting over really the, the calendar, the program, the way that they worshiped and they celebrated uh, Christ as new believers and pointing back to some of their traditions. I want you to read chapter 14, beginning in verse number 10. Look what the Bible says. It says, as he's talked about, stop fighting over these things to the Roman Christians. He says, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We've talked about that in a previous message. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. What is he saying? He's saying, worry about yourself, worry about, keep your own backyard clean, as my father-in-law used to often say. Keep your own backyard clean. Why? Because we're all going to answer for our stuff. Stop worrying about what everyone else is doing. He said, verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. And we've talked about that in a previous message. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself. He said, I know it's okay to eat that meat. It's not a, it's, it's, that's been offered to idols because the idol is dead and it's okay. He said, I know there's nothing in the Bible against that, but look what he says. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If it goes against that man's conscience, then for him he shouldn't do it. But he also shouldn't then force his conscience onto those that don't have a problem with it. I heard, actually, my brother-in-law, who's a pastor, sent me a, a, a clip just this afternoon, and it was a clip of a preacher that was talking about the tyranny of the weaker brother from this passage, those that, that feel that they have to have stronger rules in their lives, and then they impose those on others, the tyranny of the weaker brother, and be careful of that. What does he say in verse number 15? But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. If you know that, that that's a bother to him, don't do that in front of him. Don't invite him to your home to do that. Now, would you read that next phrase to the end, from destroy to the end of the verse in verse 15 aloud with me? Ready? Begin. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom, here it is, verse 17, this is our text verse. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men, uh, of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, strive for unity, biblical unity in the church there, and things wherewith one may edify another. Don't look for ways you can criticize each other. Look for ways you can encourage each other. Look for things you can rejoice about with each other. Stop focusing on that thing that you don't like about that good brother in your church and strive for unity. It's what Paul says here to the Roman Christians. Verse 20, for meat, destroy not the work of God. You see it in verse 15, he says, destroy not a fellow Christian for meat, for your sacred cow, for your thing that you're okay with that someone else isn't. Verse 20, and he says, for meat, not only don't destroy another brother, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. So what does old McDonald's had a farm have to do with Romans 14? 
What does Paul say in this passage? He says, don't destroy a brother over your pet issue. And don't destroy the church over your pet issue. What is he saying? Your church, the church is bigger than your pet issue. What is he saying? The farm is so much bigger than our cows. On Old McDonald's farm, there was more than just cows or goats. There's a bunch of other things. And by the way, if you're a farmer, let's say you're a dairy farmer, but you also have some chickens and some goats and you've got horses, guess what? You have to take care of all of them, but there are certain ones you've got to give more attention to. If that's your livelihood, there are certain ones, but you don't neglect any of them. There are things bigger than just that one pet issue, that one pet, that one pet teaching, that one pet practice for you. I think we have a picture about when our kids were little, we were on a road trip for my brother-in-law's um, uh, uh, wedding out in Iowa, and we stayed at a, on a working dairy farm a, at an Airbnb, and if we have that picture of Ashland there, you can put that up, and they had baby cows. And we were there, and it was so fun to feed them, and that, that they would raise those cows up, and then they would uh, take them, and uh, I, I think it was dairy, maybe it was meat too, because I think they had a place there where they did not so nice things to the cows so that we could have hamburgers and steaks and things. But we stayed there, and the kids got to feed the little cows, and they were the cutest. But do you know that even on that dairy farm, there were dogs and cats and roosters and chickens and horses? In any farm... The farm is more than just cows, and it's a good reminder for us, the church is more than our pet issue. What does he say here? He says, destroy not the church from meat. He says, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. That thing you're fighting over, that's not the big picture. That thing you're dividing over from that good brother, that's not the big picture. He said it's righteousness and it's peace. He said we've got a bigger task in front of us. We've got our guns pointed at the wrong people. He said the old McDonald had a farm. The the church is bigger than our sacred cows. Verse 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. I want to give us a couple of thoughts this evening on this thought. Number one, what do I see here in this passage? I see, number one, it is easy to lose focus on what really really matters. After you've been saved for a while, isn't it easy to lose focus on what really matters? And and when we live in a place like America where there's an abundance of the gospel, what do we start doing? We start finding reasons and ways to divide from other good people. Well, they don't do everything exactly like me, so I'm done with them. And we're not talking about doctrinal biblical issues, uh, core doctrines of our faith. We're talking about stylistic things and personality things, and they're in the South and they like bluegrass, and I don't like bluegrass, so I'm not going to fellowship with them because they do, actually not just the South, I think here in Santa Ana, Adam, don't you have a bluegrass family? at your church in Orange County. I think they're the only ones in Orange County and a very talented, gifted family that plays. And, uh, and, and well, I don't like that. It's, it's different flavors. And, and what we do is we, 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 we divide over and then we, we continue to uh, cut into this pie and segment it in ways that it doesn't need to be segmented. Now, again, I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about ecumenical compromise. Do not read into my words things you want me to be saying that I'm not saying. That's not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is the kingdom of God is more than meat and drink. It's righteousness. In fact, he doesn't say it's more than meat and drink. He says it's not meat and drink. He said it has nothing to do with your sacred cow. That thing you're dividing over, it has nothing to do with the big picture of God's work. 
It's not meat and drink. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. What are those things that we have when we're, when we're making, we're elevating our thing, we're losing focus on what really matters? What do we lose? when We, we lose peace and joy and righteousness. We lose those things when we lose focus on what really matters. We lose sight of more important things. We, we, we can all get our hobby horses, our pet issues, our favorite things to talk about and criticize. I remember in our preacher boys class, they, it was called church education, and my father-in-law would teach it every semester, and it would be all of the men that were training for the ministry that were in his class. And I can remember over and over and over again him telling us, be careful, pastors, about getting, uh, getting stuck on a hobby horse. You get, you get your one issue or your two or three issues, and that's all you preach about. It's all you talk about. Be careful. He said, preach the whole counsel of God. He would talk about, don't use the pulpit as a whipping post to get back at those that you're mad at, or to preach against other pastors that have nothing to do with your ministry there, or to, to, to hammer some church member that did something you didn't like. What was he saying? He was saying, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. It's so easy to lose focus on what really matters. What I have found as I've traveled to other nations and seen missionaries like the Goins family that I mentioned and others in Asia and other places where there's not the abundance of the gospel witness that we have enjoyed here in America. You know what I find out? They have a much clearer picture of what the kingdom of God is. They understand what really matters. And you know, I was in Tanzania, East Africa, and I was with a, a dear missionary family of our church, and we were talking, and they were talking about in our city, there are three or four, I think, total other American missionary families. And you know those three or four other mission, missionary American families? They, they're from different colleges, they're from different camps or cliques or whatever you want to call them, styles and programs. And if they were in America, the reality is very rarely would those four families have gathered together to fellowship with each other. They would have found reasons why they weren't quite like each other and to stay apart. But you know what those four families do? If I remember it was four, maybe three. You know what they do? They get together on an almost monthly basis. And they fellowship, and their kids play, and they get together and celebrate American Thanksgiving, and they get together and celebrate Christmas. Why? Because they understand we need each other. And may I say, even if we don't understand it here in America, we need each other. It, it, the, the, the gospel and ch churches are not, the, the, you look at the numbers of Christians and statistics and percentages, those numbers are not trending on the upward way in America over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. We're not getting more and more, we're not reaching more and more people overall in our country. Now, certain churches are, and thank God for that, but overall, we're not becoming a more Christian nation. I think we can all see that. We need each other. It's so easy to lose focus on what really matters. And then secondly, I see in this passage, it's easy to elevate issues of lesser importance. It's easy to elevate issues of lesser importance. That's what was happening here in Romans 14. And when we do that, Paul warns them, he says, when you do that, you can destroy another believer. You can destroy your relationship with another believer, and you can destroy the work of God. He, the Bible uses those words, destroy, for your meat. Don't elevate your issue of lesser importance so high that you destroy a relationship with a good brother, with a good church, with your church family. Don't fight over dumb things. He said it can, people have, that, that people will destroy their relationship with the work of God in their local church. 
people have criticized other good believers, cut them out of their lives. I've watched it in nearly 25 years of vocational ministry, criticize other good believers, cut them out of their lives. People have left good biblical churches that they were a part of for years over issues of lesser importance. What a shame that Paul warns against here. He says, be careful of elevating those things and making it that dividing line. If, if we can't agree on this, then we can't be friends. Don't destroy a brother over that. Give them grace and space in that area. Don't destroy the work of God over those things. Church splits, most church splits don't happen over matters of foundational doctrine. Some do, but most don't. Most church splits happen over personality. They happen over pride. They happen over fights over preferential issues. What's happening there? People have elevated their sacred cow and they're destroying the work of God. When you're tempted to do either of those things, to, to, to lose focus on what really matters or to elevate issues of lesser importance, remind yourself that old McDonald had a farm, and it's bigger than your cow and mine. Have I lost sight of the health of the farm as a whole and the health of the chickens and the goats and the pigs and the horses because all I've been focused on are my favorite cows? So, Pastor Ryan, that sounds great, and I agree with that. How do you know then if an issue is worthy of separating from another Christian or a church? How do you know then if it's time to separate in that in my life or to separate in those areas? How do I know what influences I should allow in? Because here's what the Bible does teach, and I talked about this a couple of messages ago. The Bible does teach that we are to mark and avoid false teachers. We are, if we find people that are not preaching the right gospel, the Bible does not say, welcome them in, sit down with them, let them speak in your church, let them in and teach their, their idea. No, if it go, Paul said it this way, if any man preach another gospel, I don't care if it's an angel that comes down and preaches it to you, let him be accursed. That's pretty strong stand. So everything, as I talked about before, is not a preferential issue. So how do we know? The Bible does teach us to mark and avoid. Is there, is there a way that we can, uh, a lens, a, a matrix, a, a grid that we can view our strongly held beliefs or practices through in order to decide if they are matters of greater or lesser importance? Because here's the reality. By nature, some people like to fight over everything, and by nature, some people don't want to fight about anything. That can be true of Christians, that can be true in marriages, that can be true of pastors. And so, what Pastor Ryan's saying, don't fight about anything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying let's fight about this for, for, the, same, for the right stuff. Let's not, let's not lose focus of what really matters. The kingdom of God is not my cow. Old McDonald had a farm. It's, the farm is bigger than just the cow. The kingdom of God is bigger than my meat and drink. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. There's an old saying, there is no doctrine a fundamentalist won't fight over and no doctrine a liberal will fight over. So how do we know when it's time to fight and when it's time to foster biblical unity with brothers with whom we disagree? I read a book last year, a pastor friend uh, was reading and recommended, a couple different pastor friends actually, it was called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And the subhead of this book, it said the case for theological triage. And it had a premise that I hadn't quite thought through in that way, and it talked about this this theological triage. What is triage? And we have have some people, let me see, who here has some experience in the medical industry? You work somewhere in in healthcare, we've got a few Missies back there, and Connie, and some others. Triage, what is triage when somebody, okay, right here, when, when they come to the hospital, what is triage? They assess the issue that the person is coming to the hospital with, and they decide how important it is. 
and how much attention it deserves, right? Triage, if you just Google the definition, it says, the, one, one definition is the preliminary assessment of patients or casualties in order to determine the urgency of their need for treatment and the nature of treatment required. So I think we all understand a hospital is going to treat a patient in cardiac arrest very differently than they're going to treat a patient who has a gash that needs stitches. And they're going to treat a patient that has a gash that needs stitches very differently, even differently than the patient who comes in with a sore throat. They're going to make an assessment of the patient to determine the urgency of the need for treatment and the nature of treatment required. They address the level of importance of the issue and then decide the priority and energy that they will give to that issue. Triage is essentially a system of prioritizing how to handle different issues. And in this book, he, he says, he makes a case for we as believers to do theological triage. For us to, to have a system of prioritizing how to handle different issues. Again, somebody comes in in cardiac arrest, you can't have them wait in the waiting room for six hours. They're going to rush them right in, they're going to be in critical care, they, they, they might end up in intensive care, all, they have all the different levels of care. Somebody comes in because they broke their finger playing basketball, they might leave you to rot in the waiting room for 8 or 10 or 12 hours. Anybody ever, ever had an experience like that? You were there and for a lot longer? It, it all depends on the level of need, the urgency of the issue that's being addressed. Just think how important the idea of triage is in a medical setting. Without it, one person would lose a limb so another could have his broken arm set. Or even worse, one person would die so another could have a bruise bandaged. So the author suggested a fourfold doctrinal triage system to run our beliefs, our practices, and strongly held um, uh, uh, things through as we decide how much time, energy, and resources to give them in our spiritual lives. I found it personally to be a helpful framework to consider, and so I share it with you this evening. He said, number one, there are first-ranked doctrines, and first-ranked doctrines are essential. Th that word is key. There's going to be a word for each one of them. They are essential to the gospel itself. These are areas where there is no wiggle room. These are not sacred cows. Those things that are essential to the gospel itself, we cannot. They went to the Jerusalem Council in the New Testament to talk about things of circumcision and other things. Do, do, do believers, do New Testament believers, Gentile believers have to do our religious traditions? And they, they had a debate over that at the Jerusalem Council. And by the way, they decided they didn't have to hold to all of the old-fashioned preferences and personal standards, if you will. But that's not what this is. These are not debates. These are things like the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the trinity, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the fact that salvation is by faith alone. If somebody is preaching salvation by works, uh, that, that is not something, well, Pastor Ryan said, Old McDonald had a farm. I guess there's room on the farm for people that believe in you have to earn your way to heaven. I guess there's room on the farm for those that believe you have to pray to Allah and those that believe you have to go into the confessional booth to the priest. Old McDonald had a farm. No, that's not what I'm saying. We have to understand and be able to rank these issues. And he said there are first-ranked doctrines that are essential to the gospel itself. He said second-ranked doctrines, these are those that are urgent for the health and practice of the church. He said in this book, he said, these may cause Christians to separate at the level of local church, denomination, and or ministry partnerships. For me, this might be something, uh, a doctrine like baptism might be on the level of a second-rate doctrine. 
Baptism is not essential to the gospel itself, just ask the thief on the cross. You can be saved without baptism. Now, it's any, that doesn't mean it's not an essential doctrine. It's not essential for salvation. Are, are we okay? We all understand that? And he says here, they're urgent, though. They're important. These are very important, and they, 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 it matters. Baptism is how people get welcomed into our church family. This is not a matter of no importance. It's a matter that is urgent for the health. But for me, I would not support or believe or practice infant baptism. I don't believe the Bible teaches it, but I also do not believe that some who would are automatically unsaved or not a part of the family of God. I don't think that I would personally choose to attend a church. In fact, I know that I would not, that that was their practice. I, I would not do that. That would not be a church that I would go to because I would have biblical problems with that. But the reality is that this is not an issue that is essential to salvation. Now, it's important, it's urgent, it matters to the health and strength of the church. Simply put, the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian is not the same as the difference between a Christian and a heretic. Do we understand that? A Christian, someone that preaches salvation by grace through faith alone and salvation by works, that's another gospel. That's a Christian, that's a heretic. Someone that might hold to infant baptism, but is not for salvation. Now, if somebody is preaching baptismal regeneration, that is essential to the gospel. If they're preaching you must be baptized to make it to heaven, but that is not what many and many wonderful theologians, people that we sing their songs and we read their books from centuries before, uh, would have differed with us in the doctrine of baptism. Does it matter? It matters, but it's, it's not a first-ranked doctrine. Again, unless they're preaching baptismal regeneration. Number three, he said, third-rank doctrines. These are important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify separation or division among Christians. And again, th these are, this is a man's thoughts. There, there's a lot of biblical support for what he says. I'm not saying these are the very words of God, and, but I found it to be a helpful framework to think through things. He said, third-rank doctrines are important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify separation or division among Christians. For me, some areas of eschatology would fall into this. Uh, I, I am a—I believe in a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture of the church. I believe that Christ will come back before the tribulation, and I've said this before. For those that don't understand or maybe haven't studied eschatology a whole lot, uh, there's coming a day where there's a seven-year tribulation on planet Earth. You can read about it in the book of Revelation, in the middle of that tribulation, um, then it goes the last three and a half years, it's, it's, it, the wrath is poured out in the first three and a half, but then it's dumped out in the second three and a half. And there are good people, men with more ministry experience than me, men that God has used in greater ways than me, men that know the Bible better than I know it, that believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, or a post-tribulation rapture. And what I always say, if they want to believe that, they can be wrong. I'm not going through the tribulation. If they want to stick around for those three and a half or those seven years, go for it. I'm going out. But here's the reality. And by the way, there are some, some of the most wonderful, godly people in our church. I know pastors that, that I've respected and admire, you've been a part of in, in your life, your, your church history, a part of churches where your pastor believed and even wrote, I know of one specific, wrote a book on mid-tribulation rapture. And he's a, he's a brilliant theologian. He's in heaven now, but a brilliant Bible scholar. I disagree with him, but I would not divide over that. Why? Because here's the reality. Whether Christ comes back before the tribulation, or in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation, has no bearing on how we live and interact with one another today. 
It doesn't change a single issue of our faith and practice. Because the Bible says, no man knows the day or the hour. We don't know. And so these areas, for me, this would be a thing that it's important, I think, that, that, that matters. I'll preach it. I'll explain why I believe in it. And the reality is, pre, post, pre, mid, and post all have scriptural passages they believe support their view, and we'll find out when the rapture actually happens who was right. But the reality is, if Caleb believed that Christ was coming back in the middle of the tribulation, that would not preclude us from working together, because neither of us know when that's going to be, and it doesn't change a single thing about how we interact with each other, how we preach Jesus, what we do, there is, that, that's, a, that's an issue. Does that matter? Does the Bible speak about when he's coming back, church, yes or no? Sure. Is it a Bible doctrine, yes or no? Yes. Should we study and, and know what we believe and why, yes or no? But there are issues that are of first-rank importance, second, third, and then, and then he said, He said, number four, fourth-ranked doctrines are unimportant to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration. Now, don't misread this. He didn't say they're unimportant. There is, do not misquote me, there are no unimportant doctrines in Scripture. Doctrine just means the word, it's just the word teaching. There is no unimportant passage in all of Scripture. I preached that very clearly last Sunday morning, how God's Word is inspired, inerrant, infallible. It, It all matters. But he says there are issues, fourth-rank doctrines or teachings that are unimportant to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration. These would be, as he defines them, these would be issues, practices, or views that are neither forbidden nor commanded by Scripture. These would be what I have defined as sacred cows for this series. Example of these might be service schedule differences, or the number of angels that exist, and people want to talk about that and argue about that. The Bible speaks of angels, doesn't tell us exactly, and so we can try to do math and study, but the reality is, knowing the answer to that question has nothing to do with our gospel witness and our ministry collaboration. Service schedule differences. Adam and Jordana are here tonight. They are, they, they, they have denied the faith, they don't love the church. Their church is not meeting tonight on Sunday night, can you believe it? So ushers, can we please escort them out of the service tonight? Don't tell them that we didn't have church last Sunday night, okay? Don't tell them that. We, but we had them tonight, all right? We always do it on the third Sunday. We're for sure never canceling the third Sunday. Here's the reality, a service schedule difference. I, I don't know if you have Sunday school right now or if you do small groups or what nights you do. That stuff is not in the, there's no teaching in the Bible of when or how to do that. The Bible does say to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And so if you do Sunday school at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning or at 6 o'clock on Sunday night or you call it uh, adult Bible studies or you have community groups or connection groups or whatever you do, whatever your method of teaching people to observe, to do all things whatsoever I've commanded you, those are not things to, to, to not collaborate. Oh, Adam and Jordan, we can have great fellowship and friendship and ministry partnership. This summer our church took a group to their, to their church to help do some physical work around their campus, and I'll guarantee it, they do some things differently than us. They have a bluegrass concert every year. We haven't had that yet. We need to get that over here. I actually would love it. I really do. These issues might be practically relevant or intellectually stimulating, but they are not theologically important. Does a church have a choir or it doesn't? Musical instrumentation choices, again, service schedules, whatever, architecture thoughts and in church work, all of those things. And, and I've heard, I've heard men preach against, you're not right with God if you have a beard. 
That's not, that, that can be a strong, and by the way, there, some people believe that strongly. They grew up during the, the hippie movement when, a, when, when facial hair and those things was a sign of rebellion in that generation. And so they feel strongly that it's kind of scruffy and it's, it's not sharp and it's unkempt and they don't like it. And that's fine for them to feel strongly about it, but I hate to break it to that pastor, Jesus had a beard. And so guess what? It's not a first-ranked doctrine. It's not essential to the gospel, and it's not, it's not urgent for the health and practice of the church. It's not important to our theology. It's, it's unimportant to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration. Looking at this ranking system, where do most church splits come from? Number four. Looking at this ranking system, where do most angry emails to a pastor come from? Number four, where do most problems in American churches stem from? Number four, I saw a tweet from a pastor, I don't know this pastor, but he said, he said a pastor told him this, I thought my job as a pastor would focus on getting my church members to encourage one another to do what the Bible commands. Instead, most of my job is keeping my church members from demanding things of each other the Bible never does. The kingdom is more than meat and drink. Here's the danger. If we don't understand how to deal with issues and what priority to give them, we will treat everything with the urgency of a heart attack. Or we will treat nothing with that urgency, both of which can be unhealthy and harmful. By the way, I just want to make it clear, this idea of ranking things in areas of importance isn't just this author's idea. It's not just this author's idea. It's a principle found throughout Scripture. The prophets told us that some sins were more heinous than others. Some sins had more consequences than others. Some things demanded immediately to be dealt with. Some things demanded death. Some things demanded a little bit of isolation. They had a very clear ranking system in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of the gospel as a matter of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15, and he spoke harshly of anyone who perverted the gospel. He said they should be accursed, but then he gives Christians in this passage and others, 1 Corinthians 8, great latitude to differ in other areas of strongly held belief. What is he showing us? There is a difference. There is a different level of importance to different things that we believe and teach. Jesus himself in Matthew 23, what did he speak of? He spoke of the weightier matters of the law. He spoke of lesser and greater degrees of punishment for different types of sins throughout the Gospels. Why does all of this matter? Here's why all of this matters. Here's why we're walking through this. Here's why it matters, because the unity of the church is essential to the mission of the church. The unity of the church is essential to the mission of the church. I did not say the uniformity of the church. I did not say you have to eat the same things I eat, you have to celebrate the same holidays I celebrate, and celebrate them in the same ways. I did not say that I don't have a beard, so Pastor Adam can't have a beard. Not uniformity in the church, unity in the church. 
We need each other. The body needs every member working in health and harmony if it's going to fulfill its purpose for existence. So it is with the church. Your body and mine, what do we need? We need every member of our body working in harmony if we're going to be able to fulfill the purpose of our existence. Pastor Jay, I think it's all right to say this. You've been having some real back issues. You've asked for prayer in a couple of different spots, and, and he's got, I think, a couple of ruptured discs, and it looks like he may need surgery. Guess what? That one member or those two discs, that spine, not in unity with the rest of his body, not in health. How, how, does, how, how often does it affect you, Jay? All day long, every day, is that fair? Affects everything you do. You feel it, you think about it when you sit down, when you stand up, when you try to lay down. The body not being healthy and unified has, has made it so that Jay cannot do all of the things he would like to do. There are physical things he'd like to do and workouts and swimming and other things he physically can't do. What His body can't fulfill its, all of its purposes for existence because the body is not healthy and unified. The members are not working together. There are a couple of discs that are rebelling. When we are fighting amongst ourselves over matters of lesser importance, we will never be properly fighting our real enemy over matters of ultimate importance. Same as the body, so it is with the church. I posted that quote, the last two quotes I posted on Twitter late last night, about 1030 at night, as I was going back through my notes before I went to bed. I posted those quotes on Twitter, and and, uh, within five minutes, our missionary in Asia, I don't know what time it was, it must have been Sunday morning or something, um, nobody in America did any, interacted with it at all, they were all in bed or something, but our missionary in Asia, Johnny Esposito, who's been serving the Lord for decades, 40 years or so probably, he he said said last night, I told him, well, because he he, he replied three or four different things to it and, uh, and appreciated it and sent it back out with a few of his thoughts. And I said, well, that's coming from a message from our night in a series I've, been, I've titled Sacred Cows. He, he sent me a text this morning, said, I've already listened to the first message in that series. I love it, man. Great stuff. Right on target. I look forward to hearing what that is. And here's what he did. Within five minutes of me posting that quote, our missionary to Asia replied with this. He said, if more of us would actually get on the real front lines or behind the real enemy lines, we would see that we truly need each other. If we really understood what it was we were fighting for and fighting against, it would change how we treated one another, how we treated other believers. Well, well, Pastor, what about people in churches who do church differently from us? I love what Charles Spurgeon said about George Herbert. He said, now I hate high churchism, very formal, very formal, stuffy, stodgy church. He said, I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan, but I love George Herbert although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul, and I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ as George Herbert did, and I do not ask myself whether I shall love him or not. There is no room for question, for I cannot help myself unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ, and I cannot cease loving those who love him. I will defy you, if you have any love to Jesus Christ, to pick or choose among his people. What was Charles Spurgeon saying in that quote? He was saying, for meat and drink, destroy not your brother. 
Don't set it not your brother. Don't destroy that relationship with good believers over that, what we might call a sacred cow or that third or fourth rank doctrine. You say, I don't, I don't believe third or fourth. I've made it clear. I'm not saying anything is less important, but there are things that Paul makes clear that are not worthy of us fighting over, destroying each other over, destroying the work of God, splitting churches, unnecessarily dividing from other people that we need to be working together with. And if you don't think division among Christians and in churches is an important thing to God, I challenge you to go read the pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus to see how much attention Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, gave to warning them against unnecessary divisions, debates, and discords. God hates it. He hates it. Right? The only letters written to pastors, he writes over and over again, keep the church unified. Why? Because the unity of the church is vital to the mission of the church. When I first came here nearly a little over seven and a half years ago, we're coming up on eight pretty quickly, there were several families at that time, and I, I really didn't hardly know anybody in this church. I knew four or five families, a couple that I had Tom and uh, Tom Chapman I had been in college with, and a couple others through the years, but Jennifer and Gordon I had met. I knew Jennifer from college, a couple others, but I, I knew very few people. But there were, back in 2015, there were several families who were struggling with some newer songs that had been introduced to the choir and for congregational singing. And after 25 years of faithful service, Pastor Tomlinson was almost weekly having to answer questions, put out fires, read lengthy emails, and deal with members threatening to leave the church, and some that actually chose to leave the church. There was even a group of people that on a few occasions met, and I love all of these people, and I don't believe any of them are still in our church. Most of them were gone before I came, but there were still a, a, the, the final kind of things there, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing them. I'm using this as an illustration. There was a group of people that met on a few occasions on, on some different weeknights without anybody in the, in anyone in the church leadership's knowledge in a member's home to sing hymns because they missed their hymns and were sad with the direction their faithful pastor was leading their church. May I remind you, just a piece of information, hymns were still being sung every Sunday in the church that time, as they were to this day, as they were tonight. But for, for them, um, they had allowed this in what was actually an act of criticism of spiritual leadership and division with other good church members. They convinced themselves they were taking a stand for righteousness. So when I arrived, several in this group made it a priority to seek me out, to meet with me on these very issues very early on, to get my ear, and I believe to get me onto their side very quickly, which I didn't come to be on anybody's side. I came to lift up Christ and to love God's people. And, and I remember some, some dinner appointments very early within the first few weeks. A family had us over for dinner, wanted to talk through this, and another one stopped by my office unannounced, wanted to talk through it. And, and faithful, good, godly people, these are not people that, that I would separate over, that I would criticize. These are people that loved God and served this church well. But they were struggling. And I recall one conversation in particular with a good, godly man who was a faithful member. He's since moved out of state, not, not over this issue, but the Lord has moved him along. He had been caught up with a group of critics who were struggling because their musical preferences were not being completely met each Sunday. He and I spent an entire afternoon together watching one of his high school children's sporting events and spending time together going out to eat. We had, we had several hours of conversation. And he told me about the group that had been meeting in a member's home and how concerned he was with what was happening and with Pastor Tomlinson's leadership and what was happening at Liberty and how he disagreed with the church leadership. I think I had only been here for two or three Sundays at that point. I don't even think I had been voted in as the pastor yet. I don't know if they were finding out if they were going to vote me in or not. What's he going to say on these meetings? 
And I asked him point blank. I said, I said his name, and he's a dear man. If I saw him today, I would, I would greet him. If he came to church today, I would mention him. He's a wonderful man. I said his name, and I said, help me understand what part of Sunday services was displeasing to Christ. I had nothing to do with running Sunday services at that point. I didn't choose any songs. I didn't even preach on that Sunday. I, had, I, was, an, I was a neutral observer. I said, help me understand. Help, and I wasn't being sarcastic. I said, seriously, help me understand these things that you guys feel so strongly against that you're gathering a, a group of people together and, 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 and really in an act of criticism of your leadership and of your pastor and going against the program of the church. Help me, and you're, you're trying to gather other people to your consensus. I said, help me understand a biblical passage that, that speaks to what you're struggling with so deeply that, that so many have, have come to talk to me about it. Help, uh, because I don't see it. I don't understand. Help me to understand what it is that you're struggling with here. What is it on Sunday that was displeasing to Christ? And he said, well, I, I don't know if I can, and he named somebody that's very good in music, and he named, he, one of them actually named Danny Thomas, which Danny and I have had long conversations on music, and well, Danny could tell you what's wrong with that and what's wrong with this. Well, that's great, but Danny isn't the pastor of the church here. I love Danny. I, he can come serve here in music ministry. We'll take him anytime, Adam. And, uh, and we're not taking him? Okay. Um, but... But I said, no, but, but you, you, you've made it, you're coming to me. What, what, help me understand biblical principles. And he hemmed and he hawed and he went, and basically it came down to, it's just not what I'm used to. I just don't like it. I just, those aren't the songs I grew up with. That's not what I'm used to. I don't, I don't like that. I, I just don't like this. And I, I stopped and I called his name and I told him that I loved traditional hymns and that every week I was learning new songs here at Liberty. Every week when I got here, I was learning songs I had never sung before. And I was going home and some of them were not my preference. And I had to ask myself, do I not like this because I'm not used to it? Or do I not like it because it's displeasing to Christ? And I, and I told him, I said, I said, there's some things that aren't my preference either. And I said his name, and I said, but I don't believe that I can see there's anything displeasing to Christ in Pastor Tomlinson's life and leadership. I, I don't believe he's leading this church in ways that go against Scripture. I, I, don't, I can't see anything that happened in the three Sundays I've been here that contradict any truth of God's Word. And here's what I said to him, and I was not trying to be angry, I was not trying to be unkind, but I said, but I can find you dozens of verses and passages that speak directly against the Spirit, you and those that have gathered together in division and in discord and against your spiritual leadership, I can find you dozens of passages that would denounce the Spirit and the attitude and the actions that some in your circle of friends have taken. And so you believe that, our, that the church is going in, in a terrible direction, and you have not one even biblical principle, let alone a biblical passage, to point that out to me. What I'm telling you is, the Bible says, he that soweth discord among brethren, God hates it. He says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, we ought to be unified in the Spirit. We ought to seek fervent charity. We ought to love one another. Don't destroy the work of God for meat and drink. I can find you dozens and dozens of specific passages passages, not just principles that go against the spirit that you've had. And that man humbly said, I appreciate you saying that to me. And he served here for several more years, joyfully and faithfully, had a wonderful spirit. And he may have still come on Sundays and sung some songs that he didn't like. It's funny. I'll have on the same Sunday, people tell me, man, that was my favorite song. I cried during that. Thank you for singing that. And we'll get in the car. My wife will say, I really didn't like that song. Or I'll tell my wife, I really didn't like that song. 
I didn't like this about it or that about it. And the sense, who's right? The reality is it's meat and drink. Old McDonald had a farm and it's bigger than my cows. What happened at that time, seven, eight years ago, some good people had treated a fourth-rank issue like a first-rank or second-rank issue, and it hurt this church, and it hurt each one of those families that allowed it to affect their spirit and the relationship with their pastor. It hurt their pastor. I know that I've had personal—saw Pastor Tomlinson and Gail this week in person. We had a meal together in Florida. I know—and we didn't talk about that, but I, we've had conversations. It hurt these, these, this couple that had given their lives for decades to people, and as soon as they did something that they didn't like, that had no biblical basis, it was just a personal thing. They were gone, and they were out, and they were leaving, and the long, angry emails, and this, and phone calls, and meetings. It hurt their relationship with their church and fellow believers in their church family. So I'll wrap it up. The answer is not for us to fight over everything, nor is it for us to fight over nothing. The answer is for us to fight for the right things. Old McDonald had a farm. If it's a dairy farm, then the health of the cows is more important than the few random pet goats that wander the pasture or the 10 chickens that give you some eggs. Make sure you are spending more time focusing on and feeding the cows than you are the goats. And in the church, the gospel is more important than, than eschatology. Make sure you're spending more time sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel and living the gospel and letting the gospel change you than you are studying the minute seven seals and what that means. And I saw this on Drudge Report, and I think Tucker Carlson told me that that's the sixth seal right there. And, and, and you get all caught up in all of these things. If, it's okay to study prophecy, it's good. It's okay to, to know what you believe about eschatology, but don't lose sight of the gospel over your pet issue. We tend to focus on peripherals and we lose sight of the true priorities of the believer in the church. Some hills are worth dying on, but as one man said, I don't want to die on any hill that doesn't look like Calvary. Old McDonald had a farm. The church is bigger than meat. The cause of Christ is bigger than my pet issue or my personal preference. God, give us the wisdom to focus on that which matters most and not to elevate those things of lesser importance. I leave you with four questions that might help you to bring some practical clarity to that issue that you're struggling with, with another believer within the church or outside of the church, with another ministry. You're considering making a major choice in fellowship or practice over. Ask yourself these four questions. Number one, how clear is the Bible on this doctrine? How clear is the Bible? I'm watching, and I don't bring these things into our church because you don't need to worry about it, but there's all kinds of crazy politics with preachers, all kinds of stupidity, stuff they fight over that's absolutely ludicrous, and fight against, and, and, and there's a big one going around right now that, that men are fighting about, and they do, not have, they do not have clear Bible doctrine to support this thing that they're calling other men heretics over. How clear is the Bible on this doctrine that you are thinking about separating with a good brother or a good church or a good family member over? Secondly, what is the doctrine's importance to the gospel? How important is it to the gospel? Third, what is the testimony of the historical church concerning this doctrine? And I know that most Baptist churches in, in the West Coast are less than 100 years old. Most of us are 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. I'm not talking about the historical Baptist church in California. I'm talking about not for decades or centuries, I'm talking about the historical church for centuries. Thousand, fifteen hundred years, how have they viewed these things? Number four, what is the doctrine's effect upon the church today? The church is so much bigger than me and it's so much bigger than you. 
Our attitude toward these matters of theology and practice should be like the old Brayton prayer inscribed on a block of wood on John F. Kennedy's desk. He said this, O God, thy sea is so great, and my boat is so small. Church is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. The cause of Christ is bigger than than us in our church. We're We're not the only one that God loves. Don't get Elijah syndrome. We're the only ones left doing right. All of America hates, anyone that does things differently than me, they hate Jesus. That's not the case. Oh God, thy sea is so great, and my boat is so small. In these matters of personal practice and preference and strongly held opinions and beliefs, handle those things with humility. You know you could be wrong, and so could I. Now, if the Bible speaks clearly to it, and you believe what the Bible says about it, you're not, and neither am I. But there are some of these issues where you might just find out five or 10 or 15 years down the road, man, I was an idiot. That's not what the Bible taught. Handle those things with humility and and treat others with grace. I fear too often we think more highly of ourselves and our sacred cows than we ought to think. The work of God is much bigger than us, friends. Let us act accordingly with fellow believers, with pastors, and with churches. I'm going to read a couple of statements here in this book. He said at the end of the book, in the, the, he has a call, the conclusion is a call to theological humility. And he says this. He says, some Christians are eager to defend sound doctrine, well and good. But is the unity of the body of Christ one of those doctrines that we jealously guard? Did you know the unity of the church is a Bible doctrine? Do you guard that? As we see in Ephesians 2.14, the unity of the church is one of the objects of Christ's death. It's why he died. This, as much as anything, is what the New Testament calls us to cherish and uphold. Therefore, our zeal for theology must never exceed our zeal for our actual brothers and sisters in Christ. We must be marked by love. We must, as my dad always puts it, pursue both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture. He says, friends, the unity of the church was so valuable to Jesus that he died for it. If we care about sound theology, let us care about unity as well. Pray for your spirit toward those who differ from you in matters of tertiary doctrines and pray for the unity and doctrinal fidelity of our church. I've said in just about every message, there's a danger that could come to our church and come to my leadership and has come to churches. There's a danger in elevating our preferences to the level of core doctrine, and there's a danger of lowering core doctrine to the level of preferences. Be careful we don't do either. Pray for unity in our church and pray for fidelity to sound doctrine. Why? Because when the body is healthy, it can fulfill its purpose for existence. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.